0: welcome to a very special Christmas bonus episode of The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. In a departure from our novel format, we are once again bringing you a story reading from a full cast performance organised by our good friend Mike Percival Maxwell. We've done one of these story readings for the last couple of Christmases, with classics such as A Christmas Carol and The Canterville Ghost. This time we thought we'd go further afield and stray from the British Isles. This time bring you a spooky story taken from Ukrainian folklore, filled with witches, the unquiet
1: dead, and the King of the Gnomes himself. This year we'll be telling the tale of The V by Gogol, and I have some wonderful readers to introduce, so let's get straight to it. Gathered by
2: the fireside, we have... Dom Allen, John
1: Casey,
3: Sarah Dovey, Rena Henzy,
1: Mike Percival Maxwell,
3: Sue Savage,
1: and Scott Dalwood. And now it's time to settle back and make yourself comfortable, as we present...
3: The V by Nikolai Vasilievich Gogol, Part 1. The V
0: is a monstrous creation of popular fancy. It is the name which the inhabitants of Ukraine give to the King of the Gnomes, whose eyelashes reach to the ground. The following story is a specimen of such folklore. I have made no alterations, but reproduce it in the same simple form in which I heard it."
1: As soon as the clear seminary bell began sounding in Kiev in the morning, the pupils would come flocking from all parts of the town, the students of grammar, rhetoric, philosophy, and theology hastened with their books under their arms over the streets. The grammarians were still mere boys. On the way, they pushed against each other and quarrelled with shrill voices. Nearly all of them wore torn or dirty clothes, and their pockets were always crammed with all kinds of things pushbones, pipes made out of pens, remains of confectionery and sometimes even young sparrows. The latter would sometimes begin to chirp in the midst of deep silence in the school and bring down on their possessors severe canings and thrashings. The rhetoricians walked in a more orderly way. Their clothes were generally untorn, but on the other hand their faces were often strangely decorated. One had a black eye, and the lips of another resembled a single blister, etc. These spoke to each other in tenor voices. The philosophers talked in a tone an octave lower. In their pockets they had only fragments of tobacco, never whole cakes of it, for what they could get hold of they used at once. They smelt so strongly of tobacco and brandy that a workman passing by them would often remain standing and sniffing with his nose in the air like a hound. Around this time of day, the marketplace was generally full of bustle, and the market women selling rolls, cakes and honey tarts plucked the sleeves of those who wore coats of fine cloth or cotton.
2: Young sir, young sir, here, here!
1: They cried from all sides. Rolls and cakes and tasty tarts, very delicious,
3: I
0: have baked them myself.
1: Another drew something long and crooked out of her basket and cried,
3: Here is a sausage, young sir, buy a sausage. Don't buy anything from her,
1: cried a rival.
3: See how greasy she is, and what a dirty nose and hands she has.
1: But the market women carefully avoided appealing to the philosophers and theologians, for these only took handfuls of eatables merely to taste them. Arrived at the seminary, the whole crowd of students dispersed into the low, large classrooms with small windows, broad doors, and blackened benches. Suddenly, they were filled with a many-toned murmur, The teachers heard the pupils' lessons repeated, some in shrill and others in deep voices, which sounded like a distant booming. While the lessons were being said, the teachers kept a sharp eye open to see whether pieces of cake or other dainties were protruding from their pupils' pockets. If so, they were promptly confiscated. When this learned crowd arrived somewhat earlier than usual, or when it was known that the teachers would come somewhat late, a battle would ensue, as though planned by general agreement. In this battle, all had to take part, even the monitors who were appointed to look after the order and morality of the whole school. Two theologians generally arranged the conditions of the battle, whether each class should split into two sides, or whether all the pupils should divide themselves into two halves. In each case, the grammarians began the battle, and after the rhetoricians had joined in, the former retired and stood on the benches in order to watch the fortunes of the fray. Then came the philosophers with long black moustaches, and finally the thick-necked theologians. The battle generally ended in a victory for the latter, and the philosophers retired to the different classrooms, rubbing their aching limbs and throwing themselves on the benches to take breath. When the teacher, who in his own time had taken part in such contests, entered the classroom, he saw by the heated faces of his pupils that the battle had been very severe, and while he came the hands of the rhetoricians, in another room another teacher did the same for the philosophers. On Sundays and festival days, the seminarists took puppet theatres to the citizens' houses. Sometimes they acted a comedy, and in that case it was always a theologian who took the part of the hero or heroine, Potiphar or Herodias, etc. As a reward for their exertions, they received a piece of linen, a sack of maize, half a roast goose or something similar. All the students, lay and clerical, were very poorly provided with means for procuring themselves necessary subsistence, but at the same time very fond of eating, so that however much food was given to them they were never satisfied, and the gifts bestowed by rich landowners were never adequate for their needs. Therefore the Commissariat Committee consisting of philosophers and theologians, sometimes dispatched the grammarians and rhetoricians under the leadership of a philosopher, themselves sometimes joining in the expedition, with sacks on their shoulders into the town in order to levy a contribution on the flesh pots of the citizens. And then there was a feast in the seminary. The most important event in the seminary year was the arrival of the holidays. These began in July, and then generally all the students went home. At that time, all the roads were thronged with grammarians, rhetoricians, philosophers, and theologians. He who had no home of his own would take up his quarters with some fellow student's family. The philosophers and theologians looked for tutors' posts, taught the children of rich farmers, and received for doing so a pair of new boots, and sometimes also a new coat. A whole troop of them would go off in close ranks like a regiment. They cooked their porridge in common and encamped under the open sky. Each had a bag with him containing a shirt and a pair of socks. The theologians were especially economical. In order not to wear out their boots too quickly, they took them off and carried them on a stick over their shoulders, especially when the road was very muddy. Then they tucked up their breeches over their knees, and waded bravely through the pools and puddles. Whenever they spied a village near the highway, they at once left it, approached the house which seemed the most considerable, and began with loud voices to sing a psalm. The master of the house, an old Cossack engaged in agriculture, would listen for a long time, with his head propped in his hands, and then with tears on his cheeks say to his wife,
2: What the students are singing sounds very devout. Bring out some lard, and anything else of the kind we have in the house.
1: After thus replenishing their stores, the students would continue their way. The farther they went, the smaller grew their numbers as they dispersed to their various houses, and left those whose homes were still farther on.
4: On one occasion during such a march, three students left the main road in order to get provisions in some village, since their stock had long been exhausted. This party consisted of the theologian Kalava, the philosopher Thomas Brutus, and the rhetorician Tiberius Gorobitz. The first was a tall youth, with broad shoulders and of a peculiar character. Everything which came within reach of his fingers he felt obliged to appropriate. Moreover, he was of a very melancholy disposition, and when he had got intoxicated, he hid himself in the most tangled thickets so that the seminary officials had the greatest trouble in finding him. The philosopher Thomas Brutus was a more cheerful character. He liked to lie for a long time on the same spot and smoke his pipe, and when he was merry with wine, he hired a fiddler and danced the Tropak. Often, he got a whole quantity of beans, i.e. thrashings, but these he endured with complete philosophic calm, saying that a man cannot escape his destiny. The rhetorician, Tiberius Gorobitz, had not yet the right to wear a moustache, to drink brandy, or to smoke tobacco. He only wore a small crop of hair, as though his character was at present too little developed. To judge by the great bumps on his forehead, with which he often appeared in the classroom, it might be expected that some day he would be a valiant fighter, "'Kalava and Thomas often pulled his hair as a mark of their special favour and sent him on their errands. "'Evening had already come when they left the high road. "'The sun had just gone down and the air was still heavy with the heat of the day. "'The theologian and the philosopher strolled along, smoking in silence, "'while the rhetorician struck off the heads of the thistles by the wayside with his stick.' The way wound on through thick woods of oak and walnut, green hills alternated here and there with meadows. Twice already they had seen cornfields, from which they concluded that they were near some village, but an hour had already passed and no human habitation appeared. The sky was already quite dark, and only a red gleam lingered on the western horizon. The deuce, said the philosopher Thomas Brutus. I was almost
0: certain we would soon reach a village.
4: The theologian still remained silent, looked round him, then put his pipe again between his teeth, and all three continued their way.
0: Good heavens,
4: exclaimed the philosopher, and stood still.
0: Now the road itself is disappearing. Perhaps we shall find a farm further on,
4: answered the theologian, without taking his pipe out of his mouth. Meanwhile, the night had descended. Clouds increased the darkness, and according to all appearance, there was no chance of moon or stars appearing. The seminarists found that they had lost the way altogether. After the philosopher had vainly sought for a footpath, he exclaimed, Where have we got to? The theologian thought for a while and said,
2: Yes, it is really dark.
4: The rhetorician went on one side, lay on the ground, and groped for a path but his hands encountered only foxholes. All around lay a huge step, over which no one seemed to have passed. The wanderers made several efforts to get forward, but the landscape grew wilder and more inhospitable. The philosopher tried to shout, but his voice was lost in vacancy. No one answered. Only, some moments later, they heard a faint groaning sound, like the whimpering of a wolf.
0: Oh, curse it all.
4: What should we do?
0: Why, just stop here and spend the night in the open air,
4: answered the theologian, so saying he felt in his pocket, brought out his timber and steel, and lit his pipe. But the philosopher could not agree with this proposal. He was not accustomed to sleep till he had eaten, first, five pounds of bread and five of dripping, and so he now felt an intolerable emptiness in his stomach. Besides, in spite of his cheerful temperament, he was a little afraid of the
3: wolves,
0: now, Callafa, that won't do. To lie down like a dog, and without any supper, let us try once more. Perhaps we shall find a house, and the consolation of having a glass of brandy to drink before going to sleep.
4: At the word brandy, the theologian spat on one side and said,
1: Yes, of course we cannot remain all night in the open air.
4: The students went on and on, and to their great joy, they heard the barking of dogs in the distance. After listening a while to see from which direction the barking came, they went on their way with new courage and soon espied a light.
0: A village! Oh, by heavens, a village!
4: His supposition proved correct. They soon saw two or three houses built round a courtyard. Lights glimmered in the windows, and before the fence stood a number of trees. The students looked through the crevices of the gates and saw a courtyard, in which stood a large number of roving tradesmen's carts. In the sky there were now fewer clouds, and here and there a star was visible.
3: See, brother, we must now cry halt. Cost what it may, we must find an entrance and a night's nice lodging.
4: The three students knocked together at the gate and cried, Open! The door of one of the houses creaked on its hinges, and an old woman wrapped in a sheepskin appeared.
3: Who is there? Let us spend the
0: night
1: here, mother. We have lost our way. Our stomachs are empty, and we do not want to spend the night out of doors. (coughs) What
3: sort of people are you? Quite harmless people. The Theologian Calava, the Philosopher Brutus, and the Rhetorician Gorobets. It is impossible. The whole house is full of people and every corner occupied. (coughs) Where can I put you up? You are big and heavy enough to break the house down. I know these philosophers and theologians. When once one takes them in, they eat one out of house and home. Go farther on. There is no room for you here.
1: Have pity on us, Mother. How can you be so heartless? Don't let Christians perish. Put us up where you like, and if we eat up your provisions or do any other damage, may our hands wither up and all the punishment of heaven light on us.
4: The old woman seemed a little touched. Well
3: she said after a few moments consideration i will let you in but i must put you in different rooms for i should have no quiet if you're all together at night do just as you'd like
1: we won't say any more about it
4: the gates moved heavily on their hinges and they entered the courtyard well now mother said the philosopher following the old woman If you add a little scrap
0: of something, by heavens, my stomach is as empty as a drum. I have not had a bit of bread in my mouth since early this morning.
3: Didn't I say, so? There you go, begging at once. But I have no food in the house, nor any fire. But we
0: will pay for everything. You will pay early tomorrow. In cash?
3: Go on and be content with what you get. You are fine fellows whom the devil has brought here. Her reply greatly depressed the philosopher
4: Thomas, but suddenly his nose caught the odor of dried fish. He looked at the breeches of the theologian, who walked by his side, and saw a huge fish's tail sticking out of his pocket. The latter had already seized the opportunity to steal a whole fish from one of the carts standing in the courtyard. He had not done this from hunger so much as from the force of habit. He had quite forgotten the fish and was looking about to see whether he could not find something else to appropriate. Then the philosopher put his hand in the theologian's pocket as though it were his own, and laid hold of his prize.
2: The old woman found a special resting place for each student. The rhetorician she put in a shed, the theologian in an empty storeroom, and the philosopher in a sheep stall. As soon as the philosopher was alone, he devoured the fish in a twinkling, examined the fence which enclosed the stall, kicked away a pig from a neighbouring stall, which had inquiringly inserted its nose through a crevice, and lay down on his right side to sleep like a corpse. Then the low door opened, and the old woman came crouching into the stall. Well, Mother, uh, what do you want here? She made no answer, but came with outstretched arms towards him. The philosopher shrank back, but she still approached, as though she wished to lay hold of him. A terrible fright seized him, for he saw the old hag's eyes sparkle in an extraordinary way.
0: Away with you, old witch! Away with
2: you! But she still stretched her hands after him. He jumped up in order to rush out, but she placed herself before the door, fixed her glowing eyes upon him, and again approached him. The philosopher tried to push her away with his hands, But, to his astonishment, he found that he could neither lift his hands nor move his legs, nor utter an audible word. He only heard his heart beating, and saw the old woman approach him, place his hands crosswise on his breast, and bend his head down. Then, with the agility of a cat, she sprang on his shoulders, struck him on the side with a broom, and he began to run like a racehorse, carrying her on his shoulders. All this happened with such swiftness that the philosopher could scarcely collect his thoughts. He laid hold of his knees with both hands in order to stop his legs from running. But to his great astonishment, they kept moving forward against his will, making rapid springs like a Caucasian horse. Not till the house had been left behind them and a wide plain stretched before them, bordered on one side by a black gloomy wood, did he say to himself, (laughs) "'It is a witch!' The half-moon shone pale and high in the sky. Its mild light, still more subdued by intervening clouds, fell like a transparent veil on the earth. Woods, meadows, hills and valleys, all seemed to be sleeping with open eyes. Nowhere was a breath of air stirring. The atmosphere was moist and warm. The shadows of the trees and bushes fell sharply defined on the sloping plain. Such was the night, through which the philosopher Thomas Brutus sped with his strange rider. A strange, oppressive, and yet sweet sensation took possession of his heart. He looked down and saw how the grass beneath his feet seemed to be quite deep and far away. Over it there flowed a flood of crystal-clear water, and the grassy plain looked like the bottom of a transparent sea. He saw his own image— and that of the old woman whom he carried on his back clearly reflected in it. Then he beheld how, instead of the moon, a strange sun shone there. He heard the deep tones of bells and saw them swinging. He saw a water Nixie rise from a bed of tall reeds. She turned to him, and her face was clearly visible, and she sang a song which penetrated his soul. Then she approached him and nearly reached the surface of the water, on which she burst into laughter and again disappeared. Did he see it, or did he not see it? Was he dreaming, or was he awake? But what was that below, wind or music? It sounded and drew nearer, and penetrated his soul like a song that rose and fell. What is it? he thought as he gazed into the depths, and still sped rapidly along. The perspiration flowed from him in streams. He experienced simultaneously a strange feeling of oppression and delight in all his being. Often he felt as though he had no longer a heart and pressed his hand on his breast with alarm. Weary to death, he began to repeat all the prayers which he knew and all the formulas of exorcism against evil spirits. Suddenly he experienced a certain relief. He felt that his pace was slackening. The witch weighed less heavily on his shoulders, and the thick herbage of the plain was again beneath his feet, with nothing especial to remark about it.
0: Oh, splendid,
2: thought the philosopher Thomas, and began to repeat his exorcisms in a still louder voice. Then suddenly he wrenched himself away from under the witch and sprang on her back in his turn. She began to run, with short, trembling steps indeed, but so rapidly that he could hardly breathe. So swiftly did she run that she hardly seemed to touch the ground. They were still on the plain, but owing to the rapidity of their flight, everything seemed indistinct and confused before his eyes. He seized a stick that was lying on the ground and began to belabor the hag with all his might. She uttered a wild cry, which at first sounded raging and threatening. Then it became gradually weaker and more gentle till at last it sounded quite low, like the pleasant tones of a silver bell, so that it penetrated his innermost soul. Involuntarily, the thought passed through his mind.
0: Is she really an old woman? Ah, I can go no further,
2: she said in a faint voice, and sank to the earth. He knelt beside her and looked in her eyes. The dawn was red in the sky, and in the distance glimmered the gilt domes of the churches of Keith. Before him lay a beautiful maiden with thick, dishevelled hair and long eyelashes. Unconsciously she had stretched out her white, bare arms, and her tear-filled eyes gazed at the sky. Thomas trembled like an aspen leaf. Sympathy and a strange feeling of excitement, and a hitherto unknown fear overpowered him. He began to run with all his might. His heart beat violently, and he could not explain to himself what a strange new feeling had seized him. He did not wish to return to the village, but hastened towards Keith, thinking all the way as he went of his weird, unaccountable adventure. There were hardly any students left in the town. They were all scattered about the country, and had either taken tutor's posts or simply lived without occupation for at the farms in Ukraine one can live comfortably and at ease without paying a farthing. The great half-decayed building in which the seminary was established was completely empty, and however much the philosopher searched in all its corners for a piece of lard and bread, he could not find even one of the hard biscuits which the seminarists were in the habit of hiding. But the philosopher found a means of extricating himself from his difficulties by making friends with a certain young widow in the marketplace who sold ribbons, etc. The same evening, he found himself being stuffed with cakes and fowl. In fact, it is impossible to say how many things were placed before him on a little table in an arbour shaded by cherry trees. Later on the same evening, the philosopher was to be seen in an alehouse. He lay on a bench, smoked his pipe in his usual way, and Through the publican a gold piece. He had a jug of ale standing before him, looked on all who went in and out in a cold-blooded, self-satisfied way, and thought no more of his strange adventure.
3: And here we end the first part of The V. Please join us at the same time tomorrow for part two, in which the philosopher Thomas Brutus receives an unexpected invitation.